you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. This movie, the fact that it is being released is a miracle in and of itself. And I never thought this day would come. And I certainly never thought it would come in the midst of a pandemic. But, you know, it doesn't lessen my appreciation for the fact that it is going to be exhibited. The writers of The Hunt are here to tell us that not all publicity is good publicity. They also explain what was so misunderstood about their violent satire. Plus, what can we learn about what the world is facing now by watching the Netflix documentary series Pandemic? Because we are more globally connected, there's more risk of people getting sick and dying. On the other coin, we see there are steps that can be taken. And so that risk is if we do nothing. And The Moth holds its first ever Spanish language story slam in L.A. It's the Frame Weekend from the Moon Broadcast Center. I'm John Horn. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. Thanks so much for joining us. These are crazy times. Every sector of our society is feeling the effects of the coronavirus, and Hollywood is no different. We are going on a weird, wild journey together. I don't know if I should be afraid, should not be afraid, should be a little bit more panicked, not panicked at all. an abundance of caution, The Late Show, as well as all the other late-night shows in New York City, will go without audiences. Film openings have been canceled. In fact, the latest Fast and the Furious sequel was supposed to open next month, and now it's not hitting theaters until April of next year. But clearly, Universal Pictures, the studio behind the Fast and Furious franchise, feels it already has waited long enough to release another movie. It's called The Hunt So it did, in fact, open this weekend. Produced by Blumhouse, the company behind Get Out and The Purge, this violent satirical thriller was supposed to come out six months ago. But when media attention over its premise created a backlash, the hunt was put on the shelf. In the film, a group of wealthy NPR-quoting liberals hunt people who don't share their political views. The movie was written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Cues, and they skewer all sides equally. The two joined me in studio this week as the coronavirus was spreading. I think my first concern is for everyone's health and safety. I mean, I completely they, agree. They, they should make a decision based on that entirely. And um, if they feel that it is safe and healthy to go see our movie, I would love for them to see it. But Yeah, obviously things have been canceled as a precautionary measure. Um, obviously listen to, um, listen to what the federal government is telling you to do and trust your own instincts. And like, God forbid, we find ourselves in a situation two weeks from now where we all realize that this outbreak had gotten way out of control and we just didn't know it yet. And it was spreading in movie theaters and a variety of other public places. Um, you know, look, it's just a movie and I don't want to, I don't want to make light of it. I don't want to tell a joke right now, but I will say like, if the movie flops this weekend, at least we can blame coronavirus. Like, you know, like it could have, it might've flopped anyway, but now we can say like, oh man, coronavirus, like that, that will certainly be the spin. So it, you, you have to understand, and I think you do, because we normally wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about a movie like this, that this movie, the fact that it is being released, that it has a wide release, is a miracle in and of itself. And I never thought this day would come, and I certainly never thought it would come in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't lessen my appreciation for the fact that it is going to be exhibited. So let's go back. This film was going to come out in September. It's coming out now. But let's go back even beyond that about the first ideas that you guys had for this story. What was going on in the country? What were your initial conversations before you started writing? I think it really did start for us with all the other non-political aspects. It started with like, what would it, what would, what would we sort of 
be excited to do next. And, and, and a Blumhouse movie was something that Damon mentioned in that, in that first conversation. And, and he, he also mentioned the idea of the most dangerous game and that being a framework that would be fun to sort of work in. But I think Damon said something very smart, which was that if you're going to have a premise uh, of, of people hunting people, you have to sort of have a really good reason for the hunting to be taking place. And then I think on a parallel track to that conversation, we were working on The Leftovers, and that show was about getting people to believe in things. And uh, through a slightly sort of religious construct, but then as the show kind of went on, it, it started to flirt more with this idea of conspiracy thinking and belief as a coping mechanism for, for emotional problems. And then I think that like then Pizzagate happened, and then around all that, the the Sandy Hook, Newtown conspiracy theory involving crisis actors. And you sort of went like, this is horrific and sickening, but there's also like an emotional thing happening here where people will believe in these crazy constructs because it's more comfortable for them to believe that there's a cabal pulling the strings of society than that chaotic and scary things sometimes happen outside of our control. And then the danger, most dangerous game is the premise is that the hunter is hunting human beings for sport. We had to eliminate the for sport aspect of it. And I think that this is where the problem began with how this, the movie got misinterpreted, which is the hunters in our movie are not hunting for sport. They're hunting for revenge. In fact, there are so, they're so bad at hunting that sport is the furthest thing from their minds. And so once you realize that revenge is a very powerful motivator, what is it they're trying to get revenge for? That led us down the rabbit hole of... Of, of the idea of you have misunderstood my political ideology. You have called me a monster. I'm not a monster. Oh, well, if you're calling me a monster, I might as well just be one. But what you're describing is a very nuanced way of looking at the story that if you don't know what the film is about and you don't understand what you're trying to do with satire, you can completely and totally misinterpret this film. Well, John, we all know that the one driver for box office are the words nuance and satire. I mean, like that's 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 a that's a that's a bullseye, isn't it? Yes, and that's exactly what happens. Let's listen to this segment from Fox News. Now, the Hollywood Reporter had previously said the original title of The Hunt was Red State versus Blue State, and that early in the script, one of the characters says, quote, nothing better than going out to the manor and slaughtering a dozen deplorables. That, of course, is the same word Hillary Clinton famously used to describe Donald Trump supporters during the 2016 presidential election campaign. We have not seen the movie nor read the screenplay so we can't independently confirm that line about deplorables is in the movie damon you're shaking your head listening to that what does that memory bring back one of the misreported facts that came out in the original swirl of reporting around this movie was that the movie was called red state blue state and it never was and i'm just yeah every time i hear it i i shake my head not because it's it's not factual, but because it's just a bad title for a movie. But I don't know where Red State, Blue State came from. And I just um, like that's why I was shaking my head. And and I, I also just sort of love the idea of like we have not seen the movie. We have not read the script, but we're just going to report the most like sort of volatile, divisive elements of it and just say the word deplorables nine times. It, it, it was surreal. And I think the frustrating part was just that there was people who had very strong opinions who didn't uh, who, who hadn't seen the movie yet. We're talking with Damon Lindelof and Nick Hughes. They're the writers of the new movie, The Hunt. There's also some other things that are happening around that time. There are a couple of shootings, one in El Paso, Texas, the other in Dayton, Ohio. And this is a movie that has violence in it, and it's gun violence. Is that part of the conversation as well around this time? Absolutely. Um, the, the horrific events that happened in El Paso and Dayton, they were back to back. So we everybody sort of woke up on, on Saturday morning to hear about the El Paso shootings, which was... Um, uh, the, the shooter walked into a Walmart and kind of opened fire, and it was later revealed that he had written some sort of um, anti-immigration manifesto. And then th- late that same night into the early morning on, on Sunday, the Dayton um, shooter walked into a bar and opened fire also with an automatic weapon. And of course, at that point, it was August, and we were still about six weeks away from release. And there were conversations happening about how appropriate our advertising was. And then by Friday of that week, Nick and I received the phone call that the movie was, that the release date was being canceled. Nick, I'm going to play you the new trailer for the film, and then we'll talk about how the film is being repositioned. 
You actually believed we were hunting human beings for sport. <laughs> but you are. We have an opportunity here to teach these people. These are not real people. They're actors. I'm playing an Arab refugee, but I identify as white. I think that's problematic too, in some way. You wanted it to be real, so you decided it was. And we should say that's dialogue from the film. You didn't re-record or retrack anything, did you? No, the movie is, is exactly the same as it was before. We did not change anything, or nor were we asked to change anything. Um, the idea that that of judging a book by its cover is very much sort of a recurring theme in the movie itself, and and so when that in fact happened to the movie, we we did think that we may we were onto something. Nick, how fun was it to write? jokes about the people that you spend time with. They're jokes about NPR. They're jokes about Ava DuVernay and her social media. There's assumptions that maybe certain people have about conservatives not reading Orwell. How much did you enjoy putting those lines in to poke fun at the people that you hang out with? Before Nick answers, I just have to say every single thing that you mentioned on the list was a Nick idea, like <laughs> intuitively, like every otherwise known as I the know best, your sense of humor, and but I know otherwise Nick's. known as the best jokes in the movie. Yes, <laughs> it was uh, it was extremely enjoyable for sure. I mean, it's it, it feels like in, not even people that I spend time with, but myself, you know, it, it was exciting to try to just go for that level of specificity. Um, so, yeah, we were going after we were going after ourselves as much as possible. I think the hardest <laughs> challenge in the movie was to heighten it to a level that seemed absurd. Yeah. You know, where it's sort of like, oh, I don't think like I don't think we've gone far enough. Like I think I literally say that all the time. Like <laughs> how do we make it clear to people that we are we are this is a satire. Do you think all of this points out a how difficult it is to do satire and B how difficult it is to do satire in an era where people can misconstrue and misinterpret and jump to conclusions with absolutely no information. Yes to all of the above. I mean, the thing that makes me feel, to be honest with you, kind of dumb or at the, at the very least naive is that I, I can honestly tell you, and I can't speak for Nick, but I think that we at least shared this as it was happening. We were very surprised when what happened happened. In in hindsight, it seems like that's an unbelievable concept. Is like you made a have, yeah. yeah, you made a movie with the word deplorables in it and and people are identifying in these camps. But we sent this script out to 50 different people. And then we made this movie in rural Louisiana. And to, and, and to say that there were members of our crew and plenty of people who read the script on all from all walks of life and all political ideologies. And, and it was a very intimate family. At some point, someone would have come up to us and said, you got a real hot potato here. Like, or I have to be honest with you, your movie's kind of offensive. And all we ever heard was like, we think it's funny. Or it's like, it's, it's, it's time that somebody like, but it's like, if you're trying to explain a Saturday Night Live sketch, it may seem super duper offensive. But if you just watch the sketch, it's like, it's either funny or it's not funny. But I think the idea to say like, oh, Saturday Night Live did a sketch this past Saturday about coronavirus. And it's a soap opera where Daniel Craig, where the whole joke is people can't touch one another. You might be inclined to say, my God, people are dying of coronavirus. There are people on a cruise ship right now who are fighting for their lives. And Daniel Craig has the audacity to, to make fun of coronavirus. And it's like, yes, like this is how we tell stories. This is how we, we, we process things in television and movies. And the idea that a movie can be dangerous is was just outside of my realm of understanding. I, it, you know, again, I know that it seems ridiculous, but it, it is true. Damon Lindelof and Nick Hughes are the writers of the movie The Hunt. Nick and Damon, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for, thanks having, for us, having us. The Hunt is in theaters now. You're listening to the Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. So this week, the World Health Organization officially called COVID-19 the novel coronavirus. A pandemic. But it would be the first pandemic in history that could be controlled. The bottom line is we're not at the mercy of the virus. With more people staying home and watching TV, you could check out an eerily relevant docuseries on Netflix that just premiered. It's called Pandemic How to Prevent an Outbreak. Sherry Fink is a correspondent for the New York Times and an executive producer of the series. She's also a doctor. 
When I reached her recently, we started with a clip from the show. The voice you'll hear is Dr. Dennis Carroll. He's the former director of the Emerging Threats Unit for the U.S. Agency for International Development. He's talking about the 1918 flu pandemic, which killed an estimated 50 million people. That flu profoundly impacted this earth. It emerged at the very end of World War I. Soldiers returning home from battle helped spread the virus around the world. We ended up seeing a global event very rapidly, even at a time when population movements were a fraction of what they are today. That's an incredibly important point, when population movements were a fraction of what they are today. How is what happened more than 100 years ago relevant to what's happening today? It's very instructive. And in fact, you know, governments, hospitals, etc., they have a lot of disaster scenarios that they plan for or they drill for. And a pandemic like the 1918 flu is one of the realistic, you know, rare but potentially foreseeable and catastrophic things that are planned for. And today, the risks, because we are more globally connected, because the population of the earth is so much bigger, there's more risk of people getting sick and dying. On the other coin, we see that there are steps that can be taken. And so that risk is if we do nothing. So there are measures. And of course, there are uh, many, many scientists now working to test potential treatments to start working on vaccines, which, of course, will take many, many months, if not uh, a year or two, to actually be something that could be a product that we could use. But we have all of those tools now that maybe we didn't have as much 100 years ago. Obviously, a series like this takes a long time to put together. The timing, I have to say, is terrifying in terms of its relevance. So when did you actually start working on it? And when did it become apparent that it was coming out at a very important time as we're talking about the coronavirus? Uh, The four of us who had the idea to do this, this was a few years back. And then it took, I think, about a year for it to be made. Um, We sort of use the frame of a a flu season and we follow responders around the world, um, you know, both with flu and Ebola and other, um, you know, people involved in trying to keep us safe. So I think it took about a year to sort of create it. And then um, Netflix has this cool thing where they translated it into all these different languages. So there were more months when that was happening. And the release date was set a long time ago. So it had absolutely nothing to do with the current outbreak. But I think the fact that the timing coincided very coincidentally, it just kind of makes the point of our series, which is that there's a danger of new viruses popping up all the time. And there are an army of people around the world who try to, um, you know, monitor for that, act on that. And uh, unfortunately, there's not perfect preparedness in the world as we're seeing now. So these are big risks all the time. So many of the people we meet in this series are incredibly inspiring. They are doctors. They are researchers. They are people who are trying to make people well, often at great risk to their own health. But in terms of the information that the public can take away, how they might change their behavior, whether or not they should be afraid or just careful, what were some of the things you wanted to impart to viewers about how they might look at the world and not be panicked about it, but do things that are smart and reasonable? Exactly. So viruses are not mysteries, right? I mean, there's still new stuff that we're learning about this current one that scientists are learning and public health officials. So the big takeaway is, yes, There are risks and there are people working to try to protect us. And I think the big takeaway, and you see this all over the world, is that when we panic, when we do things um, and we don't follow advice, for example, you see um, in the series people attacking um, Ebola workers in Congo. And then you see in Corvallis, Oregon, people who are vaccine hesitant and who aren't vaccinating their children and kind of how that's led to a resurgence of these really preventable and also potentially deadly diseases like measles. So um, the key takeaways are that we're all in this together. And so I would say now, I mean, all of us, hopefully you watch the docuseries and you learn, you learn about viruses, you learn about emerging pathogens. 
um, you're sort of um, have a hopeful takeaway. And then I would say in the moment, it is really important for all of us to be thinking now about, well, if the virus comes to our local areas, how do we get information um, good sources are local public health departments. They're on social media now. They're, they've got websites, um, your radio, KPCC, for example. And um, it's really, really important for all of us to be kind of getting good information, not being scared, but just thinking through, um, you know, what we can do to protect ourselves. And we all know those things. Hand washing, not touching your face after you touch a doorknob, things like that. This particular virus, um, those are the ways... Uh, that that you can catch it. So we we can do things that can protect ourselves. I have to say, I was watching the series and scratching my face as they said, don't touch your hands to your face that, too much, <laughs> that many times. And I, I think I'm trying to stop that behavior. Good. Sherry Fink is a correspondent at the New York Times and an executive producer of the documentary series Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. It's available on Netflix now. Sherry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This is an important time for all of us to be well-informed. KPCC and NPR are committed to bringing you reliable information about the coronavirus and breaking news. And that's why we have paused our membership drive, but we can't exactly pause our vital need for funding and support from people like you, our listeners. So while we aren't interrupting programming with our pledge drive today, we still need your support. So today, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to a generous gift from Gordon and Donna Crawford. Coming up on The Frame Weekend, the Moth Story Slam goes bilingual in Los Angeles. Stick around. We'll be right back. The journalists in the LAist newsroom work for you. I'm LA's higher education correspondent, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What the students are speaking about it is, is extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist, independent journalism, fact based journalism. Welcome back to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. It's not every day that a Hollywood studio releases a movie that coincides with a related and significant Supreme Court case, but the new Focus Features film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, has arrived in theaters a week after the court heard arguments in a landmark abortion case called June Medical Services versus Russ. It's the first abortion case to reach the high court since conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh was appointed by President Trump. The Louisiana law at issue would require doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of their abortion clinic. If this court were to uphold that law, all three of Louisiana's abortion clinics would have to close. Access to abortion is a key plot point in Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. The movie tells the story of a pregnant teen who has come to leave her hometown in rural Pennsylvania to find medical care. The movie is written and directed by Eliza Hittman. I met her at the Sundance Film Festival where her movie premiered. I first had the seed for the idea for the film in 2012, and I was editing my first feature, which premiered here, called It Felt Like Love. And I think it was October, and I was reading the news, and a woman named Savita Halepanaver died in a hospital in Galway um, after being denied a life-saving abortion. And it you know, really stunned and devastated me. And I started thinking about how far she would have had to travel to save her own life. And of course, you know, women take this journey all over the world. So it wasn't hard to, you know, begin to research and explore, you know, what it's like to go from a rural area in this country to an urban area. I want to ask you about writing your lead character, Autumn, Mm -hmm. who is 17 in the film, correct? Correct. She lives in rural Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. She doesn't Mm -hmm. have access to a lot of things that people with means and education might have in a big city. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, she is a little bit disenfranchised when the story begins. What's wrong? Rural problems? Bad cramps. Yeah. 
to get those two pretty much run through a bottle of painkillers like every month. Yeah, same. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. Well, part of the, the research for the film, and there was an, an extensive amount of research done, and when I say research, I don't mean compiling information or statistics. I mean, you know, me going out into the world to get as best an understanding for what her circumstance would be. So uh, my partner and I, who edited the film, who's very entrenched in everything I do, Scott Cummings, we drove, you know, two or three hours outside of the city and watched the landscape change and saw how quickly the world changed by going into a small coal coal mining region of Pennsylvania. And I went to local pregnancy centers and I took pregnancy tests and I tried to have conversations with the women who worked there and went through their counseling sessions and wanted to create as much of an authentic depiction of what a center in a small town would be like so that I could write those scenes with credibility. Are you pregnant at the time? Not pregnant, but they do the counseling session while the test is processing. So let's talk about these counseling sessions because depending on where you go, and it may not be clear from the sign out front, you could be walking into a place that might be, say, more aligned with the ideology of Planned Parenthood, Uh or Or, you could be walking into a place that's more aligned with Operation Rescue. If you were young and vulnerable, or if you were vulnerable, there's no way to know the difference. And yet, if you go into the latter, if you go into a clinic that is anti-abortion, something might happen. Mm -hmm. And it happens in your film, and that is you're given two pieces of information. Mm -hmm. One is bad information Mm -hmm. about how far along you are. And the second piece of information is going to be information trying to persuade you not to have an abortion. Correct. Is that something that was part of your research? Yes. And the conversation was skewed towards adoption. Um, and you know, you're, you're meeting with somebody who is dressed in medical scrubs, but have no, you know, license to practice. So, you know, I went to a range of them, you know, I went to multiple centers to just have, you know, the best understanding. They're all a little bit different. Um, and the experience was a little bit different in each of them, but they are laymen individuals giving information and performing ultrasounds. We're talking with Eliza Hittman about her film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. When people go to the doctors, they're Mm -hmm. often given binary questions, yes, Mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. You know, have you ever had this? Mm -hmm. Do you suffer from that? Mm -hmm. But there's a sequence in this film that involves a series of questions where the choices to the answer are never, rarely, sometimes, always. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you encountered in your research or where did that phrase come from? Yes, it did. It's actually on the form that they give out at Planned Parenthood. Um, And when I was talking with counselors, you know, I tried to play out scenarios. What would happen if a minor came in? You know, what would your concerns be? You know, what would be the most important things that you would want to discuss? about them in the, you know, 20 minutes before they have their abortion. And they, you know, they really stressed that they wanted to do this interpersonal violence counseling to understand, you know, the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy and to make sure that people understand, you know, that they're entitled to a healthy relationship. Um, And they found that in being binary and asking yes or no, it didn't create a platform to open up a dialogue. And so they they used what's called the Likert scale. And when I did this interview, I recorded it. And she said, you know, never, rarely, sometimes, always. And she went through the questions on the sheet with me. And there was something, you know, very lyrical and poetic about listening to this counselor repeat these questions to me um, and, you know, the possible answers. But that's really the beginning. And it's meant to open up a conversation. Autumn, when she goes on the road trying to find a place she can get an abortion, doesn't go by herself. She goes with a friend, a cousin, Mm -hmm. right, named Skylar. Mm -hmm. And this movie is really also about female friendship Mm -hmm. and female friendship 
when there is a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And it's a very understated friendship Mm -hmm. about what is shared, Mm -hmm. who is thankful, how friendship is appreciated. And in thinking about that and how you research teen friendship Mm -hmm. in those extraordinary circumstances, how did you approach telling that part of the story? You know, for me, I have memories of a lot of quiet or a, a few in my past quiet subway rides with friends when I was a youth going to, you know, Planned Parenthood in Manhattan and just always remembered you kind of don't talk about the elephant. This is when you were going to get birth control or going with friends who were having abortions? Both, you know, someone's panicked they have an STD, you know, when I was a teenager. So you've been thinking about this movie well before you started thinking about Ireland. No, I just, thought, I just is- thought about, you know, the elephant in the room and keeping somebody company along the way. And, you know, that was really my approach to exploring them. And I didn't want Skylar's character to be this like precocious, you know, hero. They're just two young people navigating a world with all these invisible obstacles. And it was about them being together more than her having every right answer. Eliza Hitman is the writer and director of Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It comes out on March 13th. Eliza, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. The popular storytelling organization, The Moth, broke new ground in L.A. recently when it held its first-ever Spanish-language story slam. The Frame contributor, Marcos Najara, was there. Once upon a time, a group of friends used to sit outside at night on a back porch in Georgia. They'd swap stories until the wee hours, while moths flitted around the bright porch light. And so, those star-filled nights gave us the storytelling phenomenon called the moth. Now, you might already know it from the popular moth radio hour that you can tune into right here on KPCC. Or, if you're brave enough, you might even show up at one of their live events somewhere in the world and tell your own story. Here's Natalie, live at the mall. I'm a preschool teacher, and I get a lot of experience taking things out of people's hands. At these story slams, there's a theme. You toss your name into a hopper and ten people are drawn, and those ten get five minutes each to tell their story, on stage, without notes. It's like, I gotta do this moth if it's Spanish. I've never told a story in Spanish. So that's, that's what made me come out tonight and, and, and perform my story. Eric Cabrera has been to Moth Story Slams before, but was never quite ready to drop his name in the hat. That is until tonight, where the moth is holding its first Spanish slam here in L.A. Uh, la oración se dice, uh, lo siento, perdón, gracias y te amo. We're in South Central at a community organization named A Place Called Home. For Cabrera, it's a special place. They saved me from the streets and all, you know, being out there and doing the things that all my homeboys did, you know, God rest their soul or whatever. But I I ended up going into finance. I work now in tech. Um, So I pretty much, I did well for myself, but now I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to be this writer, so. Over time, he's learned to turn his troubled past into rich tales. Cabrera told the audience about his life with a violent father who taught him to accept abuse from other men in his life, like a boyfriend after Cabrera came out as gay. And I had to translate it through Google because there were certain words in English that I just couldn't remember in Spanish. That's why I didn't want to go first. I kind of wanted to gauge if there was fellow pochos or pochas in the room because if there were, I was like, okay, I'm cool. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to be able to uh, do this too. So if I mess up a little bit, I won't feel as bad. <laughs> okay, a quick translation. To be pocho or pocha basically means you are a Latino person who speaks English as their first language. Spanish is your second language, so you might make mistakes along the way. And that can leave you open for lighthearted ridicule from friends and family. 
I think it's natural the way we speak. I think it's it's we're so used to saying, oh, you know, my parents were always like, only solo vas a hablar español, o solo vas a hablar en inglés. That's Jesenia Chavez, another storyteller from the Slam. But I think what we're embracing that, especially the younger generation, is embracing just being fluid between languages and not not having to limit ourselves in our in our communication because I don't have the perfect word or I don't know the word in one language or the other. Yo soy de aquí de sudeste de Los Angeles, Maywood, Huntington Park, Bell. Los conoces por Chavez told a story about growing up in South L.A., where a well-meaning teacher took her and her elementary school friends to compete in a tournament they weren't ready for, in a place that wasn't ready for them. We were all in it together as poor brown girls in this really privileged white space that was a cheerleading competition. <laughs> I wasn't going to sign up because I was feeling not ready. I didn't prepare anything. But when he said there was only nine people, I said, you know, I have nothing to lose. I love telling stories. I, I'm a poet. I'm a writer. I'm a teacher, elementary school teacher. So I think I'm a natural storyteller because of that. But, you know, there's nine people. Let me just make it ten. <laughs> Last minute. I felt really connected and like I felt like there was a lot of community. For Jennifer Hickson, one of the Moth Senior Directors, these are the stories that have gone missing. When we were just talking about how can we reach more communities, how can we hear from people that we don't hear from. Hickson and her team back in New York decided they needed to carve out space for more voices in more languages beyond English. If the, we can't get the people to come to us, we need to go to them, we need to go into their communities. Boy, Los Angeles, especially. Yeah. Back at a place called home, Cabrera won first place at the Moss inaugural L.A. Spanish Slam. He'll now move on to compete against other winners from other slams. But for now, he says this night was already perfect. I, I feel really, really great at the end of the story when I hear people, like during the break, like, thank you for your story, because that's what I live for. I live for making connections and starting conversations. So, And it's my first time. <laughs> so it was really cool. For The Frame, yo soy Marcos Najera. Coming up on The Frame, how the director of the new Pixar movie, Onward, was inspired by the death of his own father. It's The Frame Weekend. We'll be right back. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. It's the Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. Before the restrictions on gathering in community spaces, people were actually still going to the movies. And last weekend, the big winner at the box office was the animated Pixar film Onward. It's directed and co-written by Dan Scanlon, and the film follows two teenage brothers who are voiced by Tom Holland and Chris Pratt. They are elves, and they live in a world where magic has been replaced by technology and modern convenience. Here they are trying out a spell. Here we go. Focus. Uh, something wrong? Sorry, it's just your stance is, uh, here, chin up, elbows out, feet apart, back, slightly arched. Okay, how's that feel? Great. Oh, one more thing. Barley. Okay, okay. In the film, the boy's father died when they were young, so young that they don't remember him. But they have a chance to meet him again for one day if they can somehow get the magic right. It's a story that mirrors Scanlon's own life. My father, uh, William Scanlon III, my brother is the fourth, um, he passed away in 1977 when I was probably about 16 or 18 months old. And my brother was three at the time. And uh, we don't remember him at all. We've got, you know, old home movies. They don't have sound. You know, it's, it's, it's not much to glean f- of who he is. And we've always wondered who he was and, and, and how we would grow up to be like him. And is your mom still around? Were you able to ask her questions? Yeah, my mom is wonderful. My mom raised us. My mom was our support 
our inspiration, our protector. I mean, she was everything to us. And we asked a lot of questions about him and everything we knew, all the pieces of him, really most of them came from her. And uh, during making this project, I talked to my mom a lot and I asked her a lot of questions and I found out things I wouldn't have known if I hadn't started this project. You know, uh, I found out that one of my first words was dad and that my dad heard me call him dad and that I called my father dad, something I thought I had never done. My mom even went out to old friends of my father and had them write letters to my brother and I telling us what my dad was like. And for the characters in your story, Ian and Barley, I think part of the central premise of the film is that your parent, even though you're not aware of his or her presence, is always there beside you. As a filmmaker, did you feel that in this process? Probably in ways I'll never know. He's in my DNA. I behave like him, I'm guessing. We found an audio cassette when we were teenagers that had uh, my father's voice on it. And when we played it, all he said was hello and goodbye. When asked to say something into the tape recorder, he said, hi, in this very nervous, awkward way. And then when they said, well, say something other than that, he said, uh, bye, in this very shy way. And I thought, oh, he's an introvert like me. And, uh, you know, in a way that was disappointing. I think, oh, that's not my best quality. So I do think they're there. You know, they're there in you and they're having that experience with you and, and uh, in a wonderful way. When did you first start thinking about making a movie that was inspired by your father and missing him? This story has always been one of the defining stories of my life. I mean, it's just a fact of my life, having lost my dad. And it wasn't until really talking it through with other filmmakers at the studio that really worked as kind of art therapists that I started to see that there could be a story there. I talked to my mom a lot, as I mentioned earlier, and she said at one point um, when I was telling her that I hadn't had a lot of sad things happen in my life and that a lot of times movies come from some sort of sad or fearful place, even funny movies. And she said, well, how can you say you didn't have anything sad happen? Your father died. And I said, well, that's not really sad because I didn't remember him. I don't know him, so it's not really sad. And she said, that's why it's sad. And in that moment, I thought, wow, yeah, I mean... When you lose someone you know, you feel grief, but grief is really just a byproduct of love. But when you don't even have grief, it means you didn't have love. It means you really missed something. And that's a very abstract and kind of intellectual emotion and feeling, but it was um, pretty crazy to, to talk through and think about. We're talking with Dan Scanlon. He's the director and co-writer of Pixar's new movie, Onward. I'm going to give you a list of movies. The connection is not that they're all Walt Disney Company movies. You can stop me when you spot a trend. Lilo and Stitch, Bambi, Dumbo, Peter Pan, Hunchback of Notre Dame. probably dead parents. <laughs> dead or missing parents or evil step-parents. Yeah. So that is part of popular culture. And obviously there's part of Onward that fits into that cycle. What did those movies mean to you growing up? You know, it's funny. I probably didn't really notice as much as other kids did because I did lose my parent. It felt uh, normal to me or I felt a connection to it. You know, maybe that is a cliche, the dead parent in one of these films, but I think it's an important one because for kids like me who have lost someone, you do feel that you're not alone. And it also does deal with some of the feelings you're having and emotions you're having. And Obviously, we had a, a deceased family member and onward because it was this personal story. It's not a device that we added later. You touched on something that I think is really important, and that is that word device, that if you have a device, then you can understand why somebody has an evil stepmother, why they're not with their own parents. But in your film, it's not a device. It's the beginning, middle, and end. It's what the story is about. It's not what caused the story. Right, exactly. And and even that you mentioned the step-parent, I think one thing that's unique about Onward is the step-parent isn't evil. They don't get along great right away. They're a little awkward and uncomfortable around each other. But you can kind of follow the step-parent of uh, Officer Colt Bronco, who's the uh, centaur police officer. He's always doing everything he thinks is right because he loves the boy's mother. I think the movie shows that step-parent and step-kid relationship in a hopefully more nuanced way and hopefully a, a way that people can kind of learn from who are in that situation. 
What do you think your little boy self would have made of watching this film at a young age? Oh, that's a great question that I don't think anyone has ever asked. I would have been like, wow, this is really similar to my life. (laughs) I think it would have been really enlightening to see a positive brother relationship. My brother and I have been best friends our whole life. We see a lot of movies about brothers beating each other up and picking on each other, and that was never our experience. So I would have been really pleasantly shocked and surprised to see that even though these brothers are different and they have conflict, they do love each other, and there is a sensitivity to that love that I certainly wasn't seeing when I was younger and I don't see a lot of now. It's just the male brotherly, sensitive, vulnerable love. Dan Scanlon is the director and co-writer of Onward. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And we're going to close out this edition of The Frame Weekend with this. For nearly four decades, the composer, pianist, and bandleader Horace Tapscott led the Pan-African People's Orchestra. It is a freewheeling ensemble of musicians who are dedicated to making music for, about, and with the South L.A. community. Twenty years after his death in 1998, the ARC is as active as ever, thanks to the release of newly discovered material, and the group's traditions are being passed down from generation to generation. Here's more from The Frame contributor, Stephen Cuevas. The Pan-African People's Orchestra rang in the new year with one of the highest profile gigs in its six-decade history, headlining the city of L.A.'s annual New Year's Eve party at Grand Park. It's a long way from the 1960s, when founding members lived communally in a rambling Lemert Park house dubbed Quagmire Manor. The ARC mostly bypassed the mainstream club circuit, choosing instead alternate venues to better reach the community. Parks, churches, schools. They saw the togetherness and what it was about. Orchestra founder Horace Tapscott spoke to jazz historian Steve Isoardi in 1993, for a series of interviews that are now part of the UCLA Library Special Collections Archive. First, we was the wild band, the posse walking in, because everywhere we went, the whole group would be with me. Once I saw the arc, you saw men and women in the band, you saw lots of horns, two big bass players, a couple of drummers, dancers, and they had a choir. They was all playing on the same spiritual level, which was incredible. Saxophonist Michael Session is one of the ARC's longest-serving members, joining in the mid-1970s. You came out of there feeling so strong you could pull down the telephone poles. The power that attracted Session also drew members of the Black Panther Party and other so-called radicals. So, as Tapscott recalled in 1993, it wasn't unusual to have undercover cops also hanging around. I get on the microphone and say something or play something, and people would get up and understand and dance to it or stop doing what they were doing because we said something. That's all I was saying. I wasn't thinking about fighting nobody. I was thinking about getting my people educated enough and, and, and respect to each other again. Profits were never really a priority, so Tapscott relied on session work, solo gigs, and his wife's county job to make ends meet. Early on in his career, Tapscott was on track to become one of the leading lights of avant-garde jazz. He was on the up escalator in the jazz world. Jazz historian Steve Isoardi is the author of Songs of the Unsung, the musical and social journey of Horace Tapscott. He says a dispute over the production of his debut album, soured Tapscott on the music business. He was fed up with what he said, the lack of respect for black music and artists, the way the black artists were treated commercially. He felt the music was being dictated and driven by commercial needs and demands, and he decides to commit himself to home and building a community movement. Tapscott would go on to mentor and jam alongside some of the greatest L.A. jazz musicians of the past 50 years. When Michael Session joined the ARC in the 1970s, he took over for Arthur Blythe. Years before he passed away, Tapscott dropped by to see Session while he was rehearsing. I mean, he says, uh, I had a talk with the spirits last night. The direction of the ARC depends on you. 
And uh, he just turned around and left. It wasn't exactly an order. It was more of a premonition because the arc would carry on under Tapscott's direction until he suffered a stroke in the late 1990s. We planned on uh, doing a benefit concert. The day of the concert, he dies. Michael Session would guide the arc into the 2000s until another premonition, this time from his young son, drummer Michaela Session. He said, hey, after you guys go, I'm taking this horse Taps Got Music on. I want to play as much as possible, as often as possible, and, and actually like pay my musicians so they can make a living off of this. These days, the orchestra is part of a fertile South L.A. music scene with musicians who came of age with hip-hop and EDM. There's Steven Ellison, better known as Flying Lotus, and the acclaimed tenor saxophonist Kamasi Washington, who served a stint with the orchestra and now performs to packed auditoriums across the globe. That, that's what I'm saying, man. Kamasi Washington is the dream. Like, I literally met him when I was 13, 14, because he was just in the art. Like, he used to have the same church gig with my dad every Sunday. And I get to watch him and all his homies go around the world playing their music. That's the dream! Yeah, man! Session aims to steer the arc into a recording studio soon and also get it touring outside the L.A. area. A series of unheard arc recordings are also seeing the light of day, including last year's album, Why Don't You Listen? which captures one of Tapscott's final live performances nearly 40 years after he launched the Ark's endless journey. For The Frame, I'm Stephen Cuevas. And that is all we have for today. One note before we go, this is an important time for all of us to be well and be informed. KPCC and NPR are committed to bringing you reliable information about the coronavirus and breaking news that matters to you. And that's why we have paused our membership drive, but we can't exactly pause our vital need for funding. So while we aren't interrupting programming with our pledge drive today, we still need your support. So give now at kpcc.org or call 866-888-5722. And thanks. The Frame Weekend is edited and produced by Darby Maloney, along with producers Monica Bushman, Jonathan Shifflin, and Julia Paskin, with help this week from Itzi Cantinia. Our news clerk is Isara Aceves. Eduardo Perez is our engineer. The Frame's theme music is by Taylor McFerrin, and our senior producer is Oscar Garza. I'm John Horn from the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC. We really hope that everyone is staying safe and healthy out there. Have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.